Thus have I heard, two and a half thousand years ago in northern India, there lived a young man of the Gotama clan. We don't really know his first name. He's usually referred to as Siddhartha Gotama, so we'll call him that. He was the son of the elected leader of the Sakyans. In other words, he came from a well-to-do family. And at the age of 29, he left his position there in his homeland at the foot of the Himalayas and headed south to the Ganges River Valley to seek his spiritual fortune. The Ganges River Valley at that time was literally crawling with spiritual seekers. The economy in India, which was agricultural-based, had reached a level of sophistication that it could support people who weren't directly engaged in the economy, in producing food. This led to a large number of full-time spiritual seekers who gained their living by going on alms round. Also led to the rise of standing armies. You win some, you lose some. Anyhow, Siddhartha Gotama headed south, and he studied with a teacher named Alara Kalama. And Alara Kalama taught him what we know as the seventh jhana, the realm of limitless space. In fact, Siddhartha Gotama was so skilled at the practices and understood the doctrine of Alara Kalama so well that eventually Alara Kalama said to him, Come, we will lead this order together. But Siddhartha Gotama had left home because he wanted to know what to do about old age, sickness, and death. And all he'd learned was the seventh jhana. So he left. And he sought out another teacher, Udaka Ramaputta, Udaka the son of Rama. <clears throat> and he learned Rama's doctrine and practices, which led to what we know as the eighth jhana, the realm of neither perception nor non-perception. At that point, Udaka offered him sole leadership of that group, but once again, Siddhartha Gotama had not learned what to do about old age, sickness, and death, so he left. And he spent the next several years practicing austerities. He practiced things like holding his breath for as long as he could. What he discovered was that if you hold your breath for a long time over and over again, it generates terrible headaches. He practiced eating one grain of rice a day. And from that, what he discovered was if you eat one grain of rice a day, you get really skinny. You get really weak. In fact, eventually Siddhartha Gotama had problems such that he tended to fall down. He realized some six years after he'd left his home that he was in such an emaciated state that he was in no condition to do any sort of spiritual practice. All of his austere strivings had not brought him any closer to understanding what to do about old age, sickness, and death. 
he began thinking about what he could do instead of these austerities. He remembered an incident from his childhood when he was sitting under a rose apple tree and his father was working, plowing, we would assume. And while Siddhartha Gotama sat there, he fell into the first jhana. Reflecting on the first jhana, he thought, why am I afraid of this pleasure? It has nothing to do with sensuality. Could these jhanas be the way to enlightenment? And reflecting even further, he decided these jhanas are the way to enlightenment. But being so weak, he realized that in order to get his jhanas going again, he was going to have to regain his strength, so he began eating solid food. Now, at that time, there were five other ascetics practicing with Siddhartha Gotama, and when they saw he was eating solid food, they thought he had resorted to the life of luxury, and they left in disgust. But Siddhartha Gotama had not resorted to the life of luxury. He hadn't given up the spiritual path. He was just seeking something other than a dead end. The suttas don't say how long it took him to regain his strength. I would guess that it was some months. He found a good place near the Nairanjaya River to live and practice and was living under a fig tree. On the day of the full moon in the month of May, which just happened to be his birthday, he was sitting under this fig tree practicing when a woman he'd never seen before approached him and said, oh, please wait, I have something for you. You see, the fig tree he was sitting under was known as uh, the home of a fertility deva. And this woman had prayed a year earlier to this fertility deva for a child and had had a son. So she wanted to make an offering of thanks to the fertility deva. It is said that she went home and because she had a herd of cows, she milked a hundred cows. And then she gave that milk to 10 cows and milked those 10 cows. And she gave that milk to one cow, and when she milked it, out came pure cream, which she then used to make rice pudding. And she gave, she put the rice pudding in a golden bowl, and she took it to the tree deva and gave it to him as a present of thanks. After eating the meal, Siddhartha Gotama realized, you know, this is probably a pretty auspicious night for striving. It's my birthday. It's the full moon. Someone I don't know has just given me the best meal I've eaten in six years. It's definitely a good night for striving. I'm going to sit here under this tree until I figure out what to do about old age, sickness, and death or the flesh rots from my bones. So as the sun was sitting, setting, he sat down 
and he entered the jhanas, one, two, three, four. And then with his mind thus concentrated, clear, sharp, bright, able, wieldy, and attained to imperturbability, he directed and inclined it to remembering past lives. He remembered one life, two life, three lives, five lives, ten, a hundred, a thousand, a hundred thousand, many eons of world expansion, many eons of world contraction. That was the first watch of the night. In the second watch of the night, with his mind thus concentrated, clear, sharp, bright, malleable, wieldy, and attained to imperturbability, he was able to see beings passing away and re-arising according to their karma. And then in the third watch of the night, he was able to formulate what we know as the Four Noble Truths. When the sun rose the next morning, Siddhartha Gautama was a changed person. He was awake. He had become fully enlightened. He was the Buddha. It is said he spent the next seven weeks hanging out in the vicinity of, well, what we now know as the Bodhi tree. He spent the first week sitting there enjoying the bliss of enlightenment. And the next six weeks contemplating could he teach what he had discovered to anyone else. At first his mind was disinclined to teach. What he had learned was quite subtle. It went against the stream. It went against the culture of people who were pursuing pleasure and enjoying their acquisitions. It is said that the highest of the Brahma gods, upon realizing that the Buddha was disinclined to teach, as quickly as a strong man could extend his arm or draw it back, disappeared from the heavenly realms and appeared before the Buddha, got down on bended knee, and begged him to teach for the benefit of gods and humans. He said, there are some with little dust in their eyes. They will understand what you have come to understand. Well, the Buddha considered it. He thought, well, perhaps there are some with little dust in their eyes. Alara Kalama and Udaka Ramaputta certainly had little dust in their eyes, but unfortunately they both had recently died. And then he recalled his five friends with whom he had been practicing, the austerities. They had little dust in their eyes. Perhaps he should try and teach them. When the Brahma God realized that the Buddha was now going to teach as quickly as a strong man could extend his arm or draw it back, he disappeared from the human realm and reappeared in the highest of the heavens. Now the Buddha, having the clairvoyance to know where his five companions had gone, set out, headed towards the great city of Varanasi to meet up with them again. On the way, he encountered a fellow traveler. This traveler was very impressed by the Buddha's countenance. He said to him, your features are very clear. You seem quite serene. 
may I inquire who is your teacher? The Buddha said, I have no teacher. I'm awake. And his fellow traveler said, well, good for you, and passed on on the other side. The Buddha's first teaching didn't go over really well. But he persisted and kept heading west and eventually reached the little town of Sarnath, where there was a deer park where ascetics stayed. And as he approached the deer park, his five friends saw him coming in the distance. Oh, look, there's Sid the slacker. Well, we'll let him sit with us. We won't show him any deference or anything, but he can sit with us. But when he came near, his radiance was such that they couldn't keep their pack. One got up and went to take his robe and bowl. Another prepared water for him to wash his feet, and another prepared a seat for him to sit on. And after the Buddha had washed his feet and they had exchanged courtesies, he said, well, guys, I figured it out. I know what to do about old age, sickness, and death. They laughed. They said, you didn't figure nothing out. We saw you. You were eaten. You gave up the spiritual path. And he said, no, no, I didn't give up the spiritual path. I just took another path. And I found the answer. And they said, there's no way, man. You resorted to the life of luxury. And he said, no, no. Have I ever spoken like this to you before? Well, they had to agree. He'd never claimed to have figured it out before, so they decided they would listen to what he had to say. And what he said to them was the discourse setting in motion the wheel of Dhamma, the Dhamma Chakra Pavadana Sutta. In that discourse, he said there are four ennobling truths. Usually it's translated as the four noble truths, but more accurately it would be the ennobling truths. It's not that the truths are noble, but that someone who fully understands these truths is ennobled by that understanding. The first of these ennobling truths is dukkha happens. People know the word dukkha? Yeah, in the States, they used to make bumper stickers with that. Of course, they used a four-letter Anglo-Saxon word rather than dukkha, but, you know, dukkha happens. Dukkha gets translated as suffering, as stress, as unsatisfactoriness, unpleasantness. It does indeed mean all of these but the range is so broad that none of those words actually really capture what it means. It means everything from the death of someone you really love to a hangnail and everything in between. So I'll just leave it untranslated. So what the Buddha is saying is that if you're born into this world, you will encounter dukkha. This is very much the same thing that modern physics is saying. Modern physics has its teaching on entropy. Entropy is a measure of the amount of disorder in a system. And what physics has said is that if you have any system, it tends to go from a state of order to disorder. 
This is a fairly easy thing to understand. Things change. You might have heard that. And when things change, there are more opportunities for things to change in a disorderly direction than in an orderly direction. For example, if I had a copy of War and Peace, a loose-leaf binder full of the 1,000 pages of War and Peace, and I open it up and I pull out all the pages and I toss them up in the air and they come fluttering down and I put them back together. What are the odds that every page is right side up and all the pages are in the correct order? Well, I have a degree in mathematics and I'm not even able to calculate the odds on that. It's a huge number, one in many billions, trillions, who knows? So with the change that takes place from a state of order, all the pages in order, to them changing, they've got so many more opportunities to change to disorder. This is what happens in the material world. You might have noticed it happening to yourself when you look in the mirror, right? You get disorderly as the years go by. We call this aging. It happens to your car, right? You buy a nice, brand, shiny new car and you take really good care of it. And no matter how good a care you take of it, it gets a bit more disorderly until it finally gets so disorderly you have to go buy another car. Everything in the material world happens like this. Things wear out. Things break. This is what the Buddha is pointing out with his first ennobling truth. The second of these ennobling truths is the cause of dukkha. Not so much the cause, but a necessary condition for the arising of dukkha. A necessary condition for the arising of dukkha is craving. The word that the Buddha used is tanha. Tanha literally means thirst, uh, unquenchable thirst. There's actually two words in Pali that means thirst, but this is the unquenchable type of thirst, the I gotta have it type of craving. Now, this is kind of interesting. <clears throat> the craving, which is your craving, is a necessary condition for dukkha. But uh, the dukkha seems to be due to the things in the universe going wrong. So what's going on here? Well, the Buddha says that old age, sickness, death, pain, sorrow, grief, lamentation, despair are all dukkha that having to associate with the unloved is dukkha, not getting to associate with the loved, not getting what you want. In short, the five upadana khandas are dukkha. But they're dukkha because of the craving, the craving for it to be other than it is. In other words, the fact that you get sick is not dukkha. The fact that you don't want to be sick is what makes it dukkha. 
It's your craving for things to be other than they are. But given the fact that the way things are is going to change and they're going to change in a more disorderly direction, there are going to be lots of opportunities for you to crave that they be other than they are. It's not going to stay perfect if it ever does get perfect. So this craving is what is generating this experience, this felt experience of there being dukkha. Now, the Buddha says, in short, the five upadana khandas are dukkha. This is usually translated as the five aggregates subject to clinging. The five aggregates are basically what the Buddha divided the psychophysical universe into. You have the aggregate of form, and that would be all the physical things. Your body, this table, the microphone, the planet, the sun, all right? So physical form. And then four aggregates of mind. Vedna, which is your initial experience of a sense impression. There are only three possibilities, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Perception, which is your ability to identify things. You look up here, you see person, you see Kuan Yin, you see a Buddha, you see a table. All right, so you're able to identify things and name them. The third, uh, the, the fourth of the aggregates is uh, sankharas, the usually given compounded things, but more the concoctions. And it refers to all of your thoughts and emotions and memories. And the last of the aggregates being consciousness. So these five aggregates are dukkha. Uh, well, and they're the five aggregates subject to clinging, except the poly actually says they're the five clinging aggregates. Uh this is not making a whole lot of sense. Well, that's because it's a pun. The suttas are full of puns. The Buddha apparently had a very punny sense of humor. What he's actually saying is it's the five blazing bundles of fuel. It's very important to understand the context in which the Buddha was teaching. He was teaching often to Brahmins who made a big deal about fire. And so fires were an important aspect of any sort of spiritual teaching. And so what the Buddha is saying is that the five aggregates blazing with the fires of greed, hatred, and delusion are dukkha. The greed, hatred, and delusion being caused by the craving. If you have an aggregate and there's no fire of greed, hatred, and delusion associated with it, no craving, then there's no problem. But the craving often sets in. The Buddha says there are three types of craving. There's craving for sense pleasures, we like to see pleasant sights. We like to hear pleasant sounds, smell nice smells, taste nice taste, touch nice textures, 
and have pleasant thoughts and emotions. So we spend a lot of effort trying to satisfy our five external senses and the sixth sense of the mind. In fact, we live in a culture that makes use of this inherent tendency to crave for pleasant things, which tries to sell us all these pleasant things, or at least get us to buy the things thinking they'll produce these sense pleasures. The second type of craving is, well, the word is bhava, and the third type is vibhava. Bhava sometimes is translated as existence and vibhava as non-existence. I think better would be becoming and not becoming. So you crave to become rich and famous. You crave to not become sick. All right? So these are the sort of cravings that we have for sense pleasures to become something or to not become something. Now, it's true the strongest form of craving that we have is the craving for existence, to stay alive. But sometimes we have the craving for non-existence. I mean, people do commit suicide. But even if they don't go to that extreme, if things get kind of rough, they might crave for some sort of oblivion that they can find through a bottle or a smoke or a whatever. So maybe we're not craving to stop existing, but we're craving to sort of obliterate ourselves. So these are our cravings. And it's the cravings that cause the experience of dukkha. The third of these ennobling truths is the cessation of dukkha. And that's actually quite simple. If you don't want any dukkha, don't crave. Now, if I sit up here and say, all right, stop craving, you're probably not going to be able to pull that off. I mean, if the Buddha himself were sitting up here and telling you don't crave, you probably still couldn't pull it off. The cravings that we have are part of our wiring, our genetic makeup. The ancient proto-humans who didn't crave for some good food starved to death and didn't reproduce, right? So this is hardwired into us. It's just that unfortunately we've let it get out of hand so that it runs our lives. What the Buddha was doing was looking for a necessary condition for the occurrence of dukkha. That is, Whenever you found dukkha, you could always count on finding something else that was necessarily there for the dukkha to arise. And what he found was this craving. And the third noble truth is basically stop the necessary condition and you stop the result. Stop the craving and you stop the dukkha. But the stopping isn't an easily done thing. So luckily, there is the fourth of the ennobling truths, which is the Eightfold Path. Eight practices to undertake so that you can learn to stop the craving. These four ennobling truths are set out like an Ayurvedic medical diagnosis. The first truth is a statement of what 
the disease is. The disease is dukkha. The second is the cause of the disease, craving. The third is the prognosis. We have a good prognosis. It can be cured. And the fourth is the prescription for curing the disease. Now, the prescription is not a piece of paper for you to take to the chemist. It's these eight practices that you need to undertake. The first of the noble or ennobling eightfold path is right view, samaditi. The right that precedes each of these is the usual translation of sama. Perhaps a more appropriate translation would be appropriate, appropriate view. The Buddha does talk about wrong views or inappropriate views, but this is a view that is most helpful for overcoming dukkha, overcoming craving. Now, it's quite interesting that right view would be mentioned. The Buddha's discourses were preserved as an oral tradition for some 300 years after his death. And then eventually in Sri Lanka, they wrote them down. But they didn't write them all down at once. And so over a several hundred year period, they got written down. And it's possible for the scholars to take a look at the poly that's used and be able to tell what is early poly and what is later poly. You have no trouble telling the difference between 18th century English and 20th century English, right? So this is what the scholars are doing. And they pretty much agree that a collection known as the Sutta Nipata is one of the earliest that was written down. Now the interesting thing about the Sutta Nipata, often in there what you find is the Buddha teaching not holding to fixed views, And yet we have right view as the first of these ennobling on the Eightfold Path. The not holding to fixed views doesn't mean that you don't have any view at all. What it means is that you should accept all views as provisional. All views are temporary. They're just skillful means. Basically, try and understand what's going on, but don't lock down into your understanding before you achieve total enlightenment. An absolutely essential ingredient on the spiritual path is an open mind. I mean, think about it. If you're not enlightened now, you have to change from where you are. If you don't have an open mind, you're stuck where you are. So probably the most important thing to bring on the spiritual path is an open mind. So in one sense, right view would mean have an open mind. Don't lock into any view. But in other suttas, we find right view described as understanding dukkha, understanding the cause of dukkha, understanding the cessation of dukkha, understanding the path of practice that leads to the cessation of dukkha. 
In other words, the four ennobling truths. The Buddha's teaching often is holographic. So we're talking about the four ennobling truths, and we get to the fourth of the, these truths, which is the Eightfold Path, and we get to the first of the Eightfold Path, and we find right where we started, the four ennobling truths. You find this happening multiple times in the Buddha's teaching. His teaching is presented linearly, and people often want to interpret it only in a linear fashion. But it's presented linearly because it was an oral tradition. There was no other way to do it. You know, there was no PowerPoint presentation with lines and arrows or anything. It was just one word after another, and that inevitably generates a linear teaching in its presentation. But when you're trying to understand what the Buddha is saying, look deeper than just the linear presentation. Sometimes, like this, you find a holographic or certainly quite often a more holistic teaching there than just the linear presentation. At other times, right view is described as dependent origination, paticca samuppada. This is the Buddha's 12 items that are linked together in a causal sequence. So... uh, is the Buddha contradicting himself, saying at one point it's dependent origination and at another point it's the four ennobling truths? No, because the first three of the ennobling truths are actually summaries of some of the key points of dependent origination. I came, uh, like to say the ennobling truths were uh, telegram-style explanation of dependent origination. What the Buddha's genius was looking for causes, looking for necessary conditions, actually. Finding things that were necessary if some other result was going to happen. At the time that he lived, there were many views and opinions as to why things happened. Some thought the gods did everything. So in order to have the good stuff happen, you had to make sacrifices to the gods. Others felt it was recluses and Brahmins of great power that were causing things to happen. Others felt it was chance or destiny. And the Buddha goes, no, 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 it's all lawful. It's cause and effect. Pay attention to the causes if you want to understand the effects. So this is what his teaching of the Four Noble Truths and of Dependent Origination is about. We will go much more deeply into the teachings on Dependent Origination as this course progresses. The second on the Eightfold Path is Right Intention, Appropriate Intention. And what are appropriate intentions? Intentions of renunciation, Intentions of non-ill will, intentions of harmlessness. Renunciation, that's a loaded word. Most people, when they hear renunciation, have a reaction, something like, get your hands off my stuff. Well, that's our problem. We got so much stuff. We are inundated with stuff. When it's your birthday and people give you more stuff, 
You take it home and you got a nice piece of art here, but you got no room on your walls to hang it because you got so much stuff already hanging on your walls. You got a new article of clothing, but you can't hang it in your closet because your closet's already full. I mean, we are overrun with stuff. We have stuff coming out of our ears practically. In fact, you might even have so much stuff that you can't put your car in your garage. Right, And then you got so much stuff, some of which you don't need all the time, so you go down the street and you hire a room where you can store your extra stuff. It's ridiculous. And we live in a culture that says, you got a problem? Buy this stuff. You've got to have the latest stuff. I mean, sometimes you just get stuff because it's just new, cool stuff. you got no use for it. You're walking down the street, you didn't even know it existed, and suddenly you spot it and you got to have it. Renunciation is about coming to terms with your stuff. The monks and nuns needed a begging bowl, three robes, maybe a pair of sandals, a toothpick. As lay people, we need more than that. But how much stuff do you actually need? So renunciation is about getting in touch with the stuff that you have and seeing if you can somehow manage to let go of some of it. Ayakema said that it was a very good practice to go through your closets once every six months. And any clothes that you hadn't worn in the last six months, give them away to charity. It's not coming back into style. You're not going to lose those pounds, all right? Just unburden yourself. Give it away. In fact, this letting go is probably the most important aspect of the spiritual path. There's actually nothing to get on the spiritual path. There's everything to let go of. There's a book in the Tibetan tradition entitled Liberation in the Palm of Your Hand. Uh, it's a big, thick book. It's, it's interesting, but the best part is the title. Because it's true, we all do have liberation in the palm of our hand. You can see liberation. Make a fist. Come on, everybody make a fist. Hold the fist up in front of your face. Now, You want to see liberation? Look at the palm of your hand. Right? That's what it's about. It's about letting go. Right? So this is what renunciation is about. Now, renunciation is not about having all of your stuff ripped away from you or giving up stuff that you feel you just aren't ready to give up. Renunciation is about letting go, not having it ripped out of your hands. So it's a practice. And so let go of the stuff you don't really need and then work up to letting go of even more stuff. The other two practices of right intention are non-ill will and harmlessness, or to put them positively, love and compassion. We are vastly interconnected and operating in harmony with this interconnectedness means operating from a place of love and compassion, of wishing the best for all those to whom you are interconnected, that is 
the whole universe. And wherever there is some sort of dukkha, doing what you can to alleviate that dukkha. These are the intentions that we need. Intentions of letting go. Intentions based on a loving and compassionate heart. These first two on the Eightfold Path are the wisdom aspect of the path. And the next three are the ethics, the morality part. The next one is right speech. We talked about right speech last night. Right speech is refraining from lying, from harsh and abusive speech, from divisive speech, from gossip and idle chatter. Telling the truth when it's helpful and timely and with an intention from a loving heart. Not being someone who causes dissension, but being a peacemaker, speaking in a way that people can hear, and, well, avoiding such unedifying conversations as about kings, robbers, ministers, armies, dangers, wars, food, drink, beds, clothing, garlands, perfumes, relatives, villages, carriages, cities, towns, countries, Heroes, women or men, street gossip or well gossip, talk of the departed, desultory chat, talk about land and sea, talk of being and non-being. Doesn't leave a lot. Now, admittedly, this was a list that the Buddha gave to the monks and nuns. They were supposed to talk about Dharma all the time, but it's an interesting list. Kings, ministers, armies, dangers, wars, robbers. That's the six o'clock news, right? The six o'clock Duca report. I mean, that's what you do over here, right? They tell you in Afghanistan there was Duca today. And then they tell you right here in the United Kingdom there was some Duca. And the parliament tried to prevent some Duca, but of course they just passed a bill making even more Duca. And right here in our hometown, there was some dukkha. We'll be back with the weather, right? Isn't that what they do? Okay, so the dukkha report. Now, I'm not saying you don't need to know what's going on in the world. You just don't need to indulge in multiple dukkha reports. Uh, Food, drink, beds, clothing, garlands, perfumes. You go into a newsstand and you take a look at the magazines Well, you just covered a whole bunch of those magazines. Then there's, you know, uh, vehicles, right? There's a whole another big collection right there of those magazines. Relatives, that's quite an interesting topic. Villages, towns, cities, countries. Well, you can find a collection of magazines talking about those, right? Uh, Heroes. So what's that? Uh, football stars, pop stars, uh, street and well gossip, water cooler gossip, women, men, cosmological uh, philo- philosophizing. The Buddha felt that actually you needed to pay attention to what was going on here and now and try and understand what was happening. And everything else was basically a waste of time. Now, 
you probably know people that, yeah, you do engage in these sort of conversations with because that's the area where you have some commonality. If you're talking about heroes or kings, ministers, etc., just realize you're talking about things, topics that the Buddha considered unedifying. And if you see an opening to take the conversation to a higher level, by all means, take the opening. The next on the Eightfold Path is right action. Right action is defined as not killing living beings, not taking what is not given, and not committing sexual misconduct. So we have four of the five precepts mentioned in two of the Eightfold Path. You might be wondering where the precept on intoxicants is. Well, remember, the Buddha is giving this talk to five guys living on a grain of rice a day. They weren't taking intoxicants. It was only after the Buddha had lay followers that he actually introduced the precept on intoxicants. The third of the morality aspect of the Eightfold Path is right livelihood. And what is right livelihood? Any livelihood that's not wrong livelihood. And what is wrong livelihood? Any livelihood that involves breaking the precepts or encouraging someone else to break a precept. So even though you don't drink alcohol, if you work in a liquor store and sell it to other people, that would be considered not right livelihood. There are a list of, of wrong livelihoods that's given in the suttas. This includes uh, uh, selling weapons, selling slaves, uh, being a butcher, being a gambler, uh, being a mercenary. But basically it's anything that is causing one of the precepts to be broken. The last three on the Eightfold Path are the concentration, the samadhi aspect. And the first of these is right effort. And this is usually defined as the four great efforts. To make an arisen, unwholesome state go away. To prevent an unarisen, unwholesome state from arising to make an unarisen, wholesome state arise and to keep an arisen, wholesome state around and bring it to perfection. Let me give you an example. You're driving on the motorway and some idiot cuts you off. And the next thing you know, you're screaming four-letter words at your windscreen. An unwholesome state of mind has arisen, Right? And so you recognize that, well, probably doesn't do any good to scream four-letter words at my windscreen. Uh, should let it go. And then you realize, well, the thing to do to counteract the anger that has arisen is loving-kindness. So you do some loving-kindness for this person. May you learn to drive. May you arrive safely at your destination. All right? So you've taken an unwholesome state of mind that has arisen and made it go away. So you continue on the motorway and some other idiot cuts you off. 
and you're just ready to start screaming four-letter words at your windshield, but you recognize, oh, an unwholesome state is about to arise. So may you also learn to drive. May you arrive safely at your destination. So you prevent the arising of the unwholesome state. And by the way, you just brought a wholesome state into being with the practice of the metta. So keep it around. Continue to do it. May we all arrive safely at our destinations by doing metta for everybody on the motorway. Right effort also, of course, means middle way with effort, not striving too hard, not being too lax. There's the famous story of the monk who had been so delicately brought up that he had hair growing on the soles of his feet. And when he did walking meditation, it was so hard on his feet that he he wasn't making any progress. And so he went to the Buddha and said that he was going to go back to lay life. And the Buddha said, do you play the lute? And the young man goes, well, yes. And do you tighten the strings really tight? No. Do you leave the strings really slack? No. You find a way in between. Yes, well, do the same thing with your walking meditation. Don't push too hard, but don't be too slack on it, which is right effort as well. So that's the kind of effort we want in our practice here. Not being too slack, but not trying to overstrive. That overstriving comes as a result of your expectations and cravings, which will prevent the jhanas from arising. Just show up, do the practice. Figure out where you are and do what's appropriate at that point. If you're distracted, come back. If you're at access concentration, stay there for a while. If you've been there for a while, put your attention on the pleasant sensation. The seventh on the Eightfold Path is right mindfulness. Right mindfulness is defined as the four foundations of mindfulness. First foundation is mindfulness of the body. The second, mindfulness of Vedana. Vedana is usually translated as feeling, but that often gets misunderstood as emotions. It doesn't mean emotions. It means your pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral initial impression for any sensory input. Third foundation is citta, best translated in this case as mind states, knowing your state of mind. And the fourth foundation, mindfulness of dharmas, best translated as phenomena. We will go into great detail looking at the four foundations of mindfulness during the morning sessions. And then the eighth on the eightfold path is right concentration, appropriate concentration. And what is appropriate concentration? Secluded from sense desires, secluded from unwholesome states of mind, one enters and remains in the first jhana, second jhana, third jhana, fourth jhana. This is appropriate concentration. So the Buddha is defining the eighth on the eightfold path to be the first four jhanas. The practice of the jhanas would generate a mind that is indistractable, that is well-suited for investigating the nature of of reality. At the end of his talk, he looked at the five guys and he realized that one of them got it, Kandanya by name. 
And the Buddha became rather excited. He says, you know, Kandanya, you know, you know, don't you? Which in Pali is something like Anya Kadanya. And indeed, Kadanya did know. He knew that all that arises also ceases. He had made a breakthrough, the breakthrough to the first level of enlightenment, stream entry. We owe a great debt of gratitude to Kandanya. Suppose the Buddha had finished his talk and he looks at the five guys and they go, so? <laughs> he, would have, he would have gone back to the Bodhi tree and spent the next 45 years enjoying the bliss of enlightenment. But because Kandanya had little dust in his eyes and got it, the Buddha was encouraged to continue to teach. And over the next few weeks, each of the other of these five ascetics also made the breakthrough to the first level of enlightenment. And then when he knew their minds were well prepared, he gave them what we know as the second discourse, the discourse on not-self, and they all became totally enlightened. But we'll have to save that for some other time. Any questions or comments? Actually, I'll talk about the five hindrances tomorrow and what antidotes you can use. The principal antidote for desire is to see the flaws in whatever it is that you think is so desirable. See that it is impermanent and is not going to provide you lasting satisfaction. Well, no, see the... see. The, the desire is for an object. So look at the object and find it less desirable, basically. Yeah, once the desire is there, <clears throat> you can't really attack the desire itself head on, but you can get a more realistic picture of the desirable object and see its limitations. That... That can also be helpful. When you see how disruptive the desire is, it's not a useful thing to have. Yeah. Right. That, that's a useful way to look at any of the hindrances, to see that it's disrupting your practice. Yeah. Other questions or comments? At the time of the Buddha, there were the four jhanas and the four immaterial states. It was only later that they became the eight jhanas. So he felt that the jhanas, what we would call the first four jhanas, were sufficient. That if you were skilled in moving from the first to second, third, fourth, that the fourth jhana would give you a deep enough concentrated mind that your insight practice was sufficient. The four immaterial states could take you to deeper levels of concentration, but they weren't necessary. This is my interpretation. In other words, he's given what is necessary, not all the other possible options as well. <clears throat> 